This is Ari Koretsky and welcome to Jews You Should Know, introducing the broader community to interesting and inspiring Jewish men and women making a difference in our world. Some are already famous, some not yet so, but each is a Jew you should know. And we are returning with our next installment in the bridge building mini-series of the Israel podcast tour from this past summer. And I'm releasing this episode in its original time on October 29th, 2018. And sadly, just less than two days ago, on October 27th, a Shabbat morning at the congregation of Tree of Life, Eitz Chaim in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, was a terrible massacre of 11 Jewish souls as well as injured police officers and others during shul, during a bris ceremony. And besides generally feeling a need to mention it and to think about the memory of those whose tragedy is so fresh, I also thought it was quite appropriate because very often we find that in times of tragedy, in times of pain and difficulty, we come together, Jews of all different stripes and flavors backgrounds tend to forget or transcend those distinctions and express the unity that often otherwise is lacking. And this time is no different with vigils cropping up all over the country. I know on my own campus one will be taking place very shortly where I work at the University of Maryland and many of my colleagues around the country are likewise participating in these kinds of ceremonies that bring together people from all different walks of Jewish life. But wouldn't it be wonderful if we didn't have to wait for those tragedies? Wouldn't it be wonderful if we could experience that kind of solidarity on a regular basis? And in many ways, that's what today's interviewee is all about, what he personifies as the founder of the Be a Mensch project and a series of initiatives aimed at creating love, respect, unity, among the Jewish nation. He is, in effect, perpetuating that ethic, not only in times of tragedy, but in the routine and pedestrian moments of everyday life. And perhaps this interview can inspire some of us in some way to inculcate those messages into our lives, even when the shock and pain of tragedies such as the one we've just experienced have receded and we proceed with our daily existence working to enhance our love of our fellow Jews, our respect, our embrace of each of them to our fullest potential. And now our interview, recorded in the lobby of the beautiful David Citadel Hotel in the heart of Jerusalem with Moshe Kaplan. We are here with Moshe Kaplan of BeAMensch.com. Here sitting in the beautiful lobby of the David Citadel Hotel in Jerusalem, very close to the old city of Jerusalem. How are you, Moshe? Thank the good Lord. Wonderful. So nice to, to meet you and to have you join us today. Um, and the, uh, the website name itself is a great tease and, uh, and it really kind of uh, piques one's curiosity. But before we get to uh, be a mensch, let's talk a little bit about the mensch behind that um, and, and the story uh, that brings us to this operation, to this uh, initiative. And the, so tell us a little bit about yourself, where you're from, and what your upbringing was like. Okay, I, um, I grew up in a, um, 
I guess uh, at that time was a conservative Jewish background. My, my grandparents were all religious at some point, but my father uh, went to Harvard Law School and my mother wasn't too much into it. And, and uh, uh, more money, less Judaism. Right. And uh, some of the things that went on, I would call it fake news. So that kind of turned me off. I went my own way. I was not really uh, connected. You know, we, we, all my friends in those days, nobody married somebody who wasn't Jewish, but uh, I wasn't interested in getting married at the time because I was uh, going to medical school and I was avoiding the war in Vietnam, <laughs> and that was the way to do it. To and, be able to permit uh, for school. I, I, went to, I went to boarding schools. My, my two brothers and I, we, all, we both went to boarding schools with uh, actually, believe it or not, uh, one of the students was the farm, became the foreign minister of Saudi Arabia. No way. Yeah, there were, there were uh, seven Saudi princesses in our school. And the, the benefit of that being there is that we didn't have any pork in the school. So I had the, the merit to never have eaten pork because of the fact that there were Arabs in the school and the Arabs didn't eat pork. That's so interesting. Where was this school exactly? In Princeton, New Jersey. In Princeton, the boarding school was in Princeton. And where did you actually live? Family. I, my family lived in uh, Trenton. Okay, in Trenton, which I guess was it was it a nicer area at the time. Now it's kind of uh, not the best area. Correct. Got it. Right. So um, uh, there was a, a five street area that was walled off. It was a, a Jewish, the Jewish neighborhood, as you might say. Right. No, not religious, but Jewish. Right. Right. And uh, anyhow, I went off to college, medical school, internship, residency. And what kind of doctor did you become? So after I did a year of radiology residency, and then I went into medicine, and I became what was called a, it's called a psychoimmunologist. Huh. Which deals with? With uh, basically mind-body medicine, as you might say. Interesting. Very unusual, especially for that time. Yeah. Right? So, so uh, there was the holistic medicine started in California. Um, I had a partner. We didn't like the name holistic because that sounded too flaky and everybody's a holistic healer. Even if, if you just became last week, you were, uh, who knows what, maybe you, you maybe you were a used car salesman and next this week you're a holistic healer. But uh, so we called our organization Wellness Medical Group. And um, that's actually I, the forerunner of how, we got, how I got into the BMN program because uh, as a doctor, I was uh, writing books, uh, uh, came off of a grant that I had with a doctor at Stanford to, to write a curriculum for a, an ideal healthcare delivery system. The curriculum is still used in about 44 medical schools today. Wow. And, and some in Europe. And from that I wrote a book on, as a treatise on the healthcare delivery system. It was called uh, Holy Alive. <laughs> the books of one of my patients published the book. He retired, sold the thing that sold out, sold out, and that was the end of that. But it got me on television, and well, that's why I wanted to promote my practice. Wow. Anyhow, so I'm curious, what drew you initially to, you know, mind-body medicine, integrated medicine, holistic medicine, whatever you want to call it. Right. It was certainly. I mean, today I think that's somewhat in vogue. Right. But a few years back, when you were in medical school, it may not have been. You know, I, I was always a, I guess, a heretic of sorts. Um, I had a sign in my office, great spirits often encounter violent opposition, violent opposition from mediocre minds, which is a <laughs> quote from Albert Einstein. Right. Albert Einstein was one of, little, one of my heroes a little bit. My parents, uh, one of their close friends was an ophthalmologist who was very close with uh, Einstein. Wow. 
and at Princeton. Matter of fact, he left him his eyes. No way. Yep. Oh my goodness. <laughs> a little bit creepy, but yeah. yeah. And um, uh, so uh, I was, I, I, I don't know, so I guess, I don't know where it comes from, but I never never went the straight path. Yeah. <laughs> Until I, uh, so I, I followed my parents' instructions. The way to become a happy person is to become affluent. So I had, uh, after I finished my residency, I, my partner and I, we opened in San Francisco. Uh, we had seven offices. We uh, were making uh, good money. Uh, I had a Rolls Royce and a 308 GTS. And I'm 32 years old. And I woke up one day and I said, now what do I do? Right, right. Well, so why wasn't, why wasn't healing people enough of a, a satisfying mission at that point? Um, I, I can't tell you the answer to why it wasn't enough, but uh, I'm very disciplined and organized, and I had my office down to a science, as you might say, in a way. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it was just more money, and, um, and that wasn't enough. Right, right. You know, well, I mean, you, you know, I was healing my patients, but that wasn't enough either, I guess. Right, you were looking for something even more. I was looking for something more. What kinds of specifically um, practices did you incorporate? In, I imagine you also did traditional medicine? Oh, yes, we were, we were uh, today they would call it complementary Complimentary. medicine. Complementary. Right, we did all traditional uh, stuff. Mostly I, I was uh, focused on cancer. Ah. And I, uh, because of immunology, right. that was a new, that was, to now it's starting to become more in vogue also, the immunological approach to cancer. And I was a yeah. forerunner in that respect. And uh, in trying to build the person up instead of break him, uh, sh shoot him with uh, uh, chemotherapy. And uh, I was doing innovative things in addition to practicing traditional medicine. And, and I was practicing in San Francisco where you can almost do anything. But <laughs> there's a fine line between going too far out, which makes you a quack, right. and too traditional in San Francisco, which makes you part of the military industrial establishment. <laughs> right. So you have to walk this fine line. So uh, that's where I did a little bit, some traditional and some alternative. I was using intravenous vitamin C, which now has been proven to be effective in cancer. I was using that 30 years ago. I was doing a pr uh, treatment called chelation therapy, which has now also been approved and pr proven to work. But at the time it was considered out there yeah, and uh, I had uh, people don't put on people on diets, exercise. We had an exercise physiologist in the office, uh, uh, stress management, a psychologist, uh, and um, right. that's what we're doing. I think I think the, the the largest you know critique that people have nowadays about it's complementary medicine or whatever it might be, it would be some you know often they they feel like there's a lack of evidence base. Correct. for it and you know a few years ago you know omega-3 uh, fish oil was the big thing and now you know my doctor just told me well there's actually not any studies for that so so like how the so, so how one of the things that? about medicine if you've been on the inside of medicine you find out that that's not only that's true about no, I'm not saying that I I try to be very scientist based on what I did uh, and I and whatever I did I tried to as I said I had some kind of science that was about it but uh, I remember once uh, a guy named Halberstam, believe it or not, he's not religious, but he was come of that's an important family name in the, yes. in the Jewish world, and he got killed in an army accident, unfortunately. But he was an editor of a medical journal that I used to read, 
And he said, how come all the things that I learned 20 years ago in medical school, the opposite is true today? Right. And I'm not talking about, I'm talking about breastfeed versus non-breastfeed, right. radical mastectomy versus simple mastectomy, many things in medicine that are so-called the, the, the Bible uh, change. Medicine is an evolving science. Medicine, is an as, of course, is an art. It's really not, it's not just science, it's art. And of course, you have to see what the, the biggest thing, for example, in cancer, in my opinion, is hope. Now, there's no, there's no book about that you can give somebody uh, uh, to say, say, take this hope and come home in three <laughs> days. So um, it has to be, uh, and I saw many times in my practice where patients uh, who, who some kind of distressful event was keeping them from getting uh, having an effective response to so-called traditional therapeutics. Interesting. And that doesn't mean, like I said, that you can do anything. You know, you can't do magnets and and uh, think that people are going to cure, get cured. But uh, there there is some, and that's where I guess you'd lead to the to the neshama, the soul, the the uh, person's uh, uh, will to live, uh, hope all the things that you can give to people that are not in the textbooks. Right, right, very interesting. So you found yourself at 32 years old, very successful, you know, at least materially, and, uh, and, and with this wonderful, you know, booming practice, but you felt sort of an existential emptiness. Uh, what did you do from there? So what I did is uh, I started having more time because I had, I said my, I got my nurses and everything very organized that I- So as you stopped practicing as no, much no. directly, Right, no, no, I practiced, but I could limit my practice uh, right. somewhat. Uh, instead of having to, to work 18 hours a day, I was now down to the normal day. <laughs> Got it. So at night, I'm available, and I had a day, you know, it was an office practice. It wasn't a hospital right, practice, right. so I didn't have to run around 24 dealing with all these kind of emergencies. And I started reading uh, books, and I'm, I always considered myself Jew. I, I, I came from, my family was Zionistic. Yeah. Uh, my father raised a lot of money for arms for the... Um, Haganah. Uh, for, not the Haganah, uh, well, for... Lachi, Palmach. Whatever, he raised money for arms for Israel before right. the Medina. Right. Uh, and he opened his, actually opened, had opened the ZOA office in our town. And he actually got a letter with the same, it's the same problem that happens today. He got a letter from Federation, because he, he, he had a big rally that he organized. Uh, Don't do this, you'll be blackballed in the community. And my father said, too bad. So he went and did it. And uh, I guess maybe that's where I got some of that <laughs> rebelliousness <laughs> from. And uh, so my father always never, never had us believe that if we wanted to do something, we couldn't do it if we applied ourselves to it. Wow. So you just were reading and reading and what So what I started reading read? about Judaism. And uh, I had actually been in Israel in 1971 as a totally secular Jew. Uh, I had a friend who was, uh, he's one of the five most famous Israelis. He's a, he's a, he was the captain of the Israeli basketball team. Wow, what's his name? His name Tal Brody. Okay, oh sure, I've heard of Tal Brody, sure. Yeah, so Tal Brody, uh, he's now like the biggest, one of the biggest chesed people in the country. He's on the board of the Jewish Agency and then Nefesh Benefesh Lifetime Achievement Award. And he's got the Israel oh. Prize. And, All right, I've got to interview him next. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so. And Are you still friendly with him? Big, big, yeah, sure, he's, he wrote the prologue to my book. 
So uh, he's the first goodwill ambassador for, for Israel. He goes around the world and talks about, Amazing. about Israel and yeah. the beauty of Israel. And, and uh, uh, so he took me around the first time I came and I loved Eretz Israel. My parents said, you can't, go, you can't go back there until you finish all your medical stuff because they're afraid I'll come and I'll sure. never come back. Right. So, uh, and they were right just a lot later. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Anyhow, so uh, I remember the Six Day War and, and going to rallies, and and I was, uh, like I said, I was motivated, and not only for as a secular point of view, but not as a religious point of view. So I sought out uh, the Jewish community in San Francisco, and of course, I didn't know that there, there wasn't much. Right, it was a very limited one. Right, limited right, one. Right, but. When uh, I, I went to one of the, the people's houses in town, and uh, I called them, I, when I found out their name, and I called them up, and um, when they saw me drive up in a Rolls Royce, <laughs> they said, "We got to be interested in this guy. That's right. Maybe help out our you community." Help the community. <laughs> right. Anyhow, so I ended up becoming the president. I I, I ended up uh, uh, slowly, slowly enjoying the community and the friendship of the people and. And the more seemed to me more real, and of course with emphasis on sadaka, whatever. But there was no, it wasn't uh, much more looked at people about who, the, what they were instead of what they, what they are, uh, what they do instead of uh, how much money they have necessarily right. in their pocket. Right. And uh, slowly I started doing uh, mitzvahs, and uh, one thing led to the next, and I realized I got to get out of San Francisco. I'm a single guy, and uh, what am I going to do in San Francisco? Right. So uh, I didn't want to go out with, you know, I used to go to some of these federation dances and make the same kind of girls that turned me off when I was, when I was growing up and uh, buy me, snow me, show me uh, type of situation. So I thought about it for six months and I said, do I want to go to Israel or do I want to leave America? Mm. And as while I was doing this processing, uh, there was a rabbi that came through San Francisco, and his name was Rafaim Friesworth. Oh, sure. Funny you mentioned that because just yesterday I was in Harnof and I was looking at uh, a sign where they're building a, a whole synagogue. The show. That's correct. On in, the his, in his honor. That's correct. And in actually, my, my mother-in-law is uh, was a cousin of his. Oh yeah, what's uh, your mother-in-law's name? Her name is or Borenstein was the made maiden name. It was uh, uh-huh. I don't I don't remember the exact uh, connection, but uh-huh. is uh, a cousin. Okay, of so Rafael uh, Chief, was Chief Rabbi of Switzerland. No, well, he, no, he was Chief Antwerp, Rabbi of Antwerp. Antwerp. Yes. And he liked the love of Europe. And he was the person who showed me Bavli Balfe when he was 11 years old. When he was Nifter, uh, when he died, Rabbi Yoshev said, I have no one else I can learn with anymore. Yeah, he's a real I genius, mean, yeah. Uh, I mean, not, not only that, I mean, like as he, he could do the pin test. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I could go on and on with stories about him. And anyhow, so he was coming through. He was going from Antwerp to Melbourne, Australia for Aluko Sabayas of the Lakewood Kolel. He stopped in San Francisco. I, I met him. I asked him for bracha. He said, I'll get you a better bracha. So I was sad. He called the stipler, which he was very close with, in the middle of the night and got me a bracha. And the bra- stipler said, sell your business and move there to Israel. Wow. So that's what happened. That's so he, did. he sold this massive so practice. So I sold my, I, I had a partner. And, and uh, he wanted out also, and uh, and uh, we end up uh, selling our practice, and that's it. I came there to Israel. How old were you at the time? I was uh, 40 years old. Wow, so that's a big change for for that yeah, time of life. Yeah, considering I didn't speak Hebrew, didn't know basically didn't know. I knew about three people in the country. Wow. Didn't even know that you're supposed to live in a religious neighborhood. I thought everybody's Jewish. What's the difference where you live? Right. 
And what happened was, as God had it, I had a friend who was a rabbi in Los Angeles that had moved here. Sure. And he became a real estate broker here. <laughs> okay. And uh, uh, he showed me an apartment in a place called Harnoff. Ah, okay. And I never heard of Harnoff. Right. I didn't know anything about it. But I liked the view in the apartment, so I bought it. That was it. And that was it. And was his easiest client. <laughs> and uh, and uh, when I came back, I went back to America to, and to pack up my stuff and come back. When I came back, uh, and when I came back, they hadn't even. They were supposed to finish the place in a few weeks. The, the foreman had a stroke. And they never even touched. The oh place. my gosh! It was still so under construction. I, so I had this stay. It was almost finished, but uh, I couldn't live. It wasn't livable. So I had. I stayed with my friend who was the rabbi. And every day I used to go to Harnoff and try to work, get, bribe the Arabs. Yeah, give them a little right, kick in the toe. <laughs> right, to, to finish my apartment. Anyhow, so what happened is um, finally I had to move in, but there was uh, Rabbi Arbach from Machen Shlomo. Okay. Uh, there was only one bus in Harnoff in those days, so I used to stop by the bus stop, and he used to see me walking by every day. And uh, he said, what are you doing here? I said, I'm trying to get these people to finish my apartment so I can live here. So anyhow, he, he brought me into his father-in-law, Rabbi Rosenberg. Sure. And Rabbi Rosenberg asked me a couple of questions and blah, blah, blah. And uh, I had one patient who was a frum. His name was Zev Robbins. Okay, sure. And Zev Robbins was a kind of a Talmud of Rabbi Rosenberg sure. from Orsamach when right. he was at Orsamach. Right. So... Later became a big he, philanthropist himself, yeah. Right. So he, uh, I guess Rabbi Rosenberg called him. He gave me, I guess, a skama. He gave you a uh, recommendation, recommendation yeah. approbation, and next thing I was in Machon Shlomo. Wow, 40 years old, so you were probably considerably older than I the other the students. I was the oldest person, I'm the oldest person that ever came to Machon Shlomo. Wow. And finished two years. He was older than me by a couple months. He, he, come in, he came and stayed with me for a month, but he didn't, he didn't stay, he wasn't a full-time two. Right. I stayed in two, for two years in Machon Shlomo. Wow. What was that experience like? Well, it was, you know, learning about more about, you know, I was, I was ready for it, so, uh, you yeah. know. I was ready to do what I did. And didn't you didn't, know. at that point, you had soldier practice, so you didn't have pressure to work. So right. you had time to just study and grow right. Jewishly. Well, I had to accommodate Israel, and I had to deal with people, the, all the problems of, of living in a neighborhood that has no telephone, no water, no electricity. And, oh, my gosh. And uh, adjusting to a, a place where I, I don't speak the language, I don't know anybody. Right. And all those kind of realities, and still trying to maintain, you know, whatever investments I had, uh, you know, and find out what's going on and get mail. I found out after for six months I didn't get my mail and I found that they were using zip codes and the zip codes in, in Israel the same as in California. So it was going, every month my mail was going into dead letter boxes. Oh my gosh. And then I find out the, the, also that I moved into my apartment and, and uh, the first Shabbos and there was a, a, a tremendous rain and I got water eight inches up in my apartment because oh. the Arabs had filled the pipes with tar and cement. Oh my gosh. So these are little, little, little kind of problems that you have to adjust to when you uh, come to another country. <laughs> Anyhow, I decided I'm staying and uh, I don't care what it is, I'm staying. And... Uh, Slowly but slowly, uh, you know, I, I talked to people, and for, fortunately in Harnoff, there were a lot of former Americans, and I made friends, and I went to people for Shabbos, and just so after Malcolm Shoma, anyhow, I realized I needed a little, it was a little bit too intense. I went back to America, and I learned in the Yeshiva and Passaic for a, a little bit, and then I came back to Israel, and um, I got married for a short time. That was a mistake. 
but uh, I guess it's all on the path. The woman who made our, the Shidduch made the Shidduch for three guys in Machlon Shlomo. All three of us got divorced. Oh my goodness. And then she got divorced. Oh my goodness. And uh, anyhow, it was a short marriage. It was, uh, we left peacefully. And yeah. Was mm -hmm. your plan to, to begin to, to re-practice medicine in Israel? Was no, no, so somebody, actually somebody from America found me and they, I, I did get a permanent license because I was involved with uh, an organization where we used to train doctors, Israeli doctors in subspecialty training. So they gave me a lifetime permanent license, but um, I really was interested in learning. And uh, so some guy who, I don't know where he found me, but he was from America, he said, I want you to practice medicine. I said, I don't want to practice medicine, I want to learn Torah. So uh, we went to Rev. Rev. Shlom Zalman Arbach. The great, the great sage at the right, time, yeah. And, and see what he says. So he said, well, why can't you learn half a day and practice medicine half a day? I said, well, I was never in yeshiva before. He said, in that case, you just have to stay in yeshiva. So that was the end of that. Wow. And the other thing that happened was, shortly after I was here, I happened to be, in, you know, as they were still doing construction, yeah. and there were, a truck was going down the street where I lived, Nakablan, and a, a boy ran out of the, oh. the, the building, and the truck hit him, oh. and uh, he had a 12-inch gash in the back of his neck, had grand mal seizures. I was fortunate enough to be involved in saving his life, Wow! and I became a trauma doctor. <laughs> so I was a couple other guys in Harnoft who had been EMTs, and. America and some who had not been but wanted to get trained and we started uh, Hatzalah in Harnoff. Oh, wow. And so I became the medical director and I was doing that 24-7. Well, I interviewed Ellie Beer, so. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah, I just sent him an email today. He's, okay. a, friend, he's a friend of mine. I also sent him an email today. <laughs> so <laughs> I, so I man. was involved before Ellie Bear was involved. I mean, Ellie Bear's involved since he's 12 years old, but right. uh, I was involved in Hatzalah of Harnoff started before United Hatzalah. Really? Wow. Yeah. He only started when he became old enough to right, right. deal with it. Anyhow, he, so he happens to be a friend of mine, and he's part of our project, by the way. Oh, wow. And uh, he's a big Baal and I actually spent Pesach with him this past year. Oh, nice. Yeah. Anyhow, so I decided, since I had written this book in America called Holy Alive, I would write a series of essays in Israel where I would get people, and I, would, and I called it A Holy Life. And one was about, I took the top from nutritionist, and I had him write about diet as a, from Jew, and I had a barrel wine. Rabbi Chrysler called when he was here. Called barrel wine. Said, write a chapter for Moshe Kaplan, and I, I became very close to Rabbi Chrysler. And he wrote one about how you should do with your money. And Rabbi Gottlieb wrote a chapter about philosophy, and Rabbi Tribbetz wrote a chapter. We had all different aspects of how you drive when you drive your car and when you go in the supermarket. How a Jew supposed to act. A, a religious Jew, or and any Jew, really. Yeah. So after the book, Rabbi Gershenfeld had a friend who, who worked with Wolfson. Sure. Uh, they liked the book, and they said they're going to send it out to all the cure of organizations in America. Nice. So that's what they did, and the book sold out. And uh, so some people came to me and said, now you got to write a sequel. I said, I don't know what to do. <laughs> so there was a boy in Machon Shlomo at the time. His name was Jay Greenberg. I just happened to see him. Now he uh, works in a fund in, in uh, England because he married an English girl. Okay. And he worked for a, a publishing company, a Double Day, and he was a smart guy. He went to Princeton and he turned down Columbia Law School twice. And his parents were both doctors, so we had, uh, and um, 
So we decided to write a, we'll write a sequel, and the book was, and so what do we name it? Be a Mensch. Be a Mensch. And so the chapter, it says a psychologist and a psychiatrist and a, a Rabbi Tversky, and we had a, a Nathan Sharansky, yeah. and uh, a Rabbi Gottlieb, uh, a Rabbi Tversky, and all different aspects uh, of being a Mensch. So the book was published in English. I had a friend of mine who's a survivor, who's became a, a very, very wealthy uh, American Jew and became a right-wing politician. <laughs> I'm not politician, I mean supporter. supporter. And he happens to live in Indianapolis. He's the one that got Michael Pence involved in politics. Wow. And his daughter-in-law is Jared Kirshner's first cousin. So uh, <laughs> that's how Mike Pence became the vice president of the United States. Oh my goodness. Anyhow, so he's a close, one of my close, closest name? friends. His name is Hart Hasten. Okay. He built the day school in Indianapolis. Oh, okay, I've heard that name, yeah. And uh, uh, he had published his own book about his own life called I Shall Not Die. And he sent me to his publisher, Geffen, and they published the book, Be a Mensch, in English. And then uh, somebody saw the book, and he said, well, everybody's got to be a mensch. Let's use this for Kirov. Right. So there was a fellow who, his name is Yehuda Shine. Jonathan Rosenblum has written him up many times. I considered him as one of the Lamed Bab Siddiquim in the world today. His wife's got a great job, he's an Israeli. And we had a program, a, a conflict resolution program created. And we created our, our Mensch program. And what we do, instead of trying to teach people about Kashrut and, and Shabbos right away, we teach them to be a mensch. And how do we do that? We have uh, Yeshiva Bakram that we have trained. No politics, no religion. We now have no politics and no religion. And we have dialogue groups that go on with kids from, and we, since we have a reputation that we're not pushing Shabbos and Kashrut, right. we, de we develop a chibur with them. And after a year of having connection with them, then we can, then we can teach them about Yiddishkeit. But we teach them integrity, tolerance, respect, consideration, breaking down stereotypes, and obviously Israel. That's what we do. If we had more money, we could, we could turn this country upside down. We have 80,000 kids waiting right now to go through our program. Wow. So how does it work? Do you, you go, is it we school go all over the country. Is it school-based? No, no, it's not. We, the schools based? have invited us too, and the Army's invited us, but we don't have enough money to... So we go all over the country. Now we're dealing with the Boy Scouts of Israel and the Girl That's Scouts so of famous. Israel, and we go all over the country, and we run these dialogue groups wherever they're at. We've had the leaders have gone through our program, and that's what we do. And uh, we have three, we had, uh, so what happened, the other thing that kind of helped us is uh, we had made a YouTube, which was on Israeli television for four months. And uh, when the girl got spit on in, uh, uh, in uh, Beit Shemesh, yeah. and we won the grant from the Jewish agency to deal with the problem there. So we started running dialogue groups in Beit Shemesh. And uh, slowly but slowly, here and there, and, uh, and we, got, we got known, we had, like I say, so we're, we're known for what we do. And, and people, uh, the Hashemir sent us a letter where you're the only Haredim in the country we're willing to talk to. Mm. So uh, we have letters. I should have brought you a brochure, but we have, uh, I, could, I could email some of this sure, stuff I'd to love you. To see it. And uh, the book was published then in Hebrew by Yed Books, which is the largest publisher in the country. I went to see them. They said, we don't do these kind of books. We do novels and sell 3,000 and then go to the next one. So the guy says, well, let me read the manuscripts. So I send the manuscripts. Two days later, he sends me, he says, this uh, email, he says, this book is so important, 
Uh, even though we don't usually publish these kind of books, I'm going to publish it anyhow. Beautiful. So, uh, um, the book is, you know, so that's it. We have the book and uh, we have our dialogue groups. And now we started, a, we see the rifts that are going on in the Jewish world. And they're all based on, we, we, our analysis is they're all based on politics and religion. So we, no, we do no politics, no religion. And, and instead of looking for what the differences are, they had the 10 top supposedly experts that said how to resolve the rifts. And they said that religious people should become less religious or the, or the, or the non-religious should become religious or the right-wingers should become left-wingers or the left-wingers should become right-wingers. And from our perspective, none of that will ever happen, at least not in the near future. So we said, we're gonna, instead of we're gonna, uh, looking at what people have in difference, we're going to look at what they have in common. And what they have in common is their Jewishness. So we have now 200 major Jewish organizations in America, the Orthodox, Reform, Conservative, all, almost all major Jewish organizations, the Federation, the Mizrahi, some Haredim, and uh, we have this project called One Jewish People Project, and we're hoping to launch this project uh, after the Chagim. And what's that project about? And this project is that we're asking, it's basically two, on two levels. One is we're asking every Jew in the world to do a chesed for another Jew, kindness, an yeah. act of kindness for another Jew. And we're having, we have a scroll, a virtual scroll. Uh, we're finalizing, I think it will probably be in, uh, housed in the, the Jerusalem Foundation. And the Jerusalem as the world center of the Jewish people is the focus. And every year, Om Yushalayim will be the, like the, begin, the end in the beginning. And people will be able to send in by email or Twitter or any other kind of social media or whatever they do, whatever chesed they did, and it will be basically uh, put in this virtual scroll for perpetuity, so people of their grandchildren come here, they can see, hey, my grandfather took my grandmother to, to the supermarket yesterday, or whatever chesed, every kindness that they want to do. They opened the door for somebody, they uh, said a kind word, they gave him some tzedakah, they, they uh, took somebody to the hospital, they gave a kid a lunch, they hope a kid cross the street, um, uh, they uh, led a blind man in the right direction. Whatever, whatever act of kindness they did, they can send it in and we'll post it. So that's one thing. And then of course we're asking uh, for people to make donations for only for, for unity projects. And those, these, or, there are many of these organizations people could donate directly to B'nai B'rith, the Jewish National Fund. They're all part of these things. But we're, asking, we're not asking for donations to those organizations. We're asking that people donate to um, unity projects. The first three that we're going to be working on, of course, our dialogue program, and then we have two others. One is uh, a lone soldier program, and the third is um, uh, the third is uh, orphans and widows in Israel. It's a special program for unity. Nice. I have a great unity project, but I'll share it with you off the air. Okay. Leave that as a teaser. <laughs> so anyhow, so that's what we have. Uh, uh, United Hatzal is part of the project. Uh, uh, you know, uh, Yad Eliezer, Yad Sara. Wow. All of these are all the biggest chesed organizations in Israel. And uh, now we we uh, we were told we have to get. You know, Tal Brody said, "You listen. You know, it's got to be everything transparent, and you got to get all." A, a financial team because people take all this money and nobody knows what happens to it. Sure. So I, we got a, a CFO and we got a and we got all the people that he wanted and an executive director and and we got Rick Schottenstein 
became a strategic advisor with uh, me, and uh, we got four uh, co uh, honorary co-chairman, uh, Joe Lieberman. Sure, interviewed uh, him. Uh, <laughs> right, uh, Malcolm Holmline. Interviewed him. Uh, <laughs> Let's see how, uh, how I can do uh, it. Johanna uh, uh, Rabib, who's, uh, uh, she's, she was the head of the Jerusalem Foundation. She just left. Okay, who I'm not interviewed yet. <laughs> and, uh, Arbib, and uh, the fourth one is uh, Abe Foxman. Okay, so I'm, I'm two out of four. <laughs> okay, so Abe Foxman was recommended by, uh, I just cold called Jerry Silverman, who's sure. the head of NA, yeah. Right, so I called, cold called him, and he said, yeah, of course we would join this program. So that was one. Uh, he recommended Abe Foxman. It turns out Abe Foxman was very close with uh, my, my uh, cousin of mine. Oh, that's funny. Uh, Joe Lieberman, my brother used to be the chairman of APAC. No way. Yeah. And my brother passed away uh, oh. about a year ago. What was your brother's name? Lonnie Kaplan. Lonnie Kaplan, okay. So uh, my brother was like this with Joe Lieberman. Really? When, when, when my brother passed away, uh, Joe Lieberman sent me uh, an email and said, I love your brother. Oh, isn't that nice? So my, my brother was a big Baruch Hasid. Yeah. And there's two ways you become the chairman of APAC. Either you give a lot of money or you raise a lot of money. My brother was a brilliant guy. Uh, went to Harvard, right? And uh, he, he uh, raised millions of dollars for for APAC. Amazing, amazing. And that's why they made him the president. He could he could get money out of anybody. Squeeze uh, squeeze water. No, from no, the he, rock, huh? he was so smart. If anybody gave him an objection, he would turn over their turn their objection against them. Right. Okay. Too bad I, I didn't couldn't get trained from him. <laughs> right. We all I, I myself. So uh, anyhow. Uh, I was very close with him. We used to speak sometimes five, six times a day. Wow. And uh, I even made the diagnosis on him, uh, unfortunately. Wow. Yeah. He was living in the States still? Yeah, he was living in the States. States. He's a lawyer in Princeton. He, was, Princeton. he ran my father's law practice. Wow. Wow. Did he leave behind any family? Or? Yeah, he had a daughter. He has a daughter who uh, has some grandchildren. His daughter's a lawyer, a top lawyer in Massachusetts. And uh, she was one of the top ten lawyers in Massachusetts. And uh, he's got three grandchildren. And um, that's it. And he also, uh, uh, Joe Lieberman was very close by say, with my brother. Yeah. And so uh, Joe Lieberman said, because of your, uh, it was my brother's yard site, around my brother's yard site, when I asked him, I said, will you do this? I know him because kids listened to me for money for when he was running for vice president. Right. And I used to give him Halias because I used to be the, the deputy gab, I used to be the assistant gabi at this hotel before I found Nate Sock. Oh, at the, uh, at the, 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 the David Zillow, okay. Yes. <laughs> so I, when he would come here, when he, I, I would stay, here, would stay when he would I come. I say I would give him Halias. So, so anyhow, so uh, I asked him, he, sa he said he would do it because of Lonnie. Wow. So and Malcolm Holmline told me, he said, I'll, if you can get Joe Lieberman, I'll also do it. <laughs> so I, as soon as I got Joe Lieberman, he called I called Malcolm Malcolm right up. <laughs> yeah, two amazing people, two right. amazing people. Right. Uh, so, uh, and uh, my partner, the guy I work with in the Mensch, he, he skirted, he rescanned the web all the time looking for a thing, and he found uh, Johanna Arbib, and I, I, I'm hoping she's going to come back next week. She went back to Italy, where, where she used to commute, but now 
she you know finished her tenure she she resigned but uh, she accepted to be one of the co-chairmen and she's hopefully going to help us she uh, knows she was raising 21 million dollars a year for the Jewish Foundation so oh my gosh so I we're hoping that she's gonna she told us we need more women and we said okay and sure. more Israelis I said okay bring them in and hopefully she's going to connect us with some people and we have some other people working on some wealthy people we we need a break we need one one break with a good gvir one whale one whale <laughs> and uh, we'll piggyback that my brother always told me get your anchor tenant so that's why i went after federation and here i went after yad because those are the two biggest chesed organizations in each country right and once you get them so then you go after the other ones they you know they slowly they fall in place yeah Incredible. So you're trying to launch this project after the uh, right. So I'm the around the GA because the GA this year is the whole thing is about the dia the diaspora Israel dialogue. Ah, okay. So the idea is going to be that it's going to be a worldwide project. So, right, right, right. And we're of course we're going to go if we if we get enough money we're going to try and get fundamentalist Christians involved and also people that anybody that loves Eretz Israel. We and wants to support Eretz Israel. We're we're happy to get them involved. Not in, the, in Judaism, of course, but in being a supporter. Right. On any on any, and they can also do deeds of yeah. kindness. Absolutely. So, Absolutely. And, and and like I said, since we're it's no no non-religious and non-political, so we can anybody can be part of the project, and we'll see where we go with it. In the meantime, uh, hopefully, we'll raise some money and continue be able to to. Uh, do our continue our dialogue programs because if we had we don't need a lot of money I mean from what money is from Jewish organizations if we had a million and a half dollars we could turn this whole country upside wow. down we could have dialogue things going all over the country yeah do you feel like there are any other organizations that are that are doing similar kinds of things um, have you ever tried to partner with like an organization like Gesher or we know we've met with matter of fact when Gesher found out what we're doing they panicked Right. And because uh, they have their Unity Day, right? But they ha oh, we have also uh, Rabbi Goldstein, the, the, the sure. Shabbat project. They're part of it. They have a million people. Uh, they panicked because they thought we were going to take their thunder. But they have like they have a half a million people. We have we have uh, about eight million people. Uh, I don't know how many will participate, but at least connections to eight million people. Right. So uh, and we said so we called ours. One Jewish people project and let them do what they're doing and so what is what are your typical days look like now these days you oh so I didn't get to one other major event in my life which yeah. changed my life significantly okay you know I, I told you I got married uh, I didn't tell you that I got married to a Moroccan Israeli 13 years oh, ago okay and uh, that's a miracle in itself because she lived in Nitivot. Wow. She used to design the dresses for the Abu, the Abu Ghazar, the Baba Sali's family. Wow. She's a dress designer. And how would I, I never heard of Nitty Vote, let alone <laughs> heard of her. Anyhow, some woman came from America that I knew, who was a shopman, and her, because her daughter had passed away and she was helping her son-in-law, and she met my wife, and, and, uh, and uh, I saw her picture, and I said, I want to go out with her. So uh, what happened is uh, we met, and she was also would find it kind of fallen through the cracks and she had a lot of eight brothers and sisters oh my and gosh yeah. they all got married she went to base Yaakov and they they all got married young and she didn't get married so she got like lost in the cracks behind bit, yeah right and uh, anyhow so I met her and it went well and uh, Brook Hashem we uh, we got uh, got married 
And uh, she was a little nervous because of the age difference, but we went to her rabbi and I said, we asked for Moshe Sternbach. And he said, well, Moshe Sternbach says, if you know the age, there's no problem. Because we went to Rev Chaim Kenevsky and he's, his, the Rebetzin said, you shouldn't be that much difference in age. So we went, we went to Rev Moshe Sternbach and he said, uh, if she knows and she wants to, it's okay. So we, my wife was nervous. We, we went to her rabbi and, and, and we said, if he says, okay, we'll do it. If not, not. And we went to a rabbi and he said, the guy looks like a mensch, marry him. <laughs> Be a mensch. There Even you though I, I wouldn't call myself a mensch, but uh, anyhow, so now my wife is, of course, one of the reasons she wanted to get married is because of children. Sure. Her time was running out. Sure. Anyhow, so we struggled and we went through different tipulim, through different medical things. I'm a with, doctor. Did you work with Pua at all? And I worked uh, with Pua. I interviewed uh, the director of Pua, or one of the directors, uh, uh, the other day. Yeah, well, so his name is Bornstein, by the uh, way. Right, the, the founder. Right. But I, I interviewed the head of the English program, which is Rabbi, uh, Rabbi Weitzman. Oh, so Rabbi Weitzman is the one that I related to. Wonderful. And he came to, and uh, he's the one that I always met with and consulted. And he's a great guy. And uh, anyhow, we went through... We went through many doctors. I'm a doctor. I, I always had one doctor. He's a professor and one of the medical schools here said, you're wasting your time. You'll never have a child. Why go home and forget it? And, but, you know, I'm, like I said, that means to me it's just another challenge to overcome. Right. And, uh, of course, we did IVF. I mean, we're right. not going to have a natural child. Anyhow, uh, Billy I and her, two and a half months ago. Wow. We had our first shot. Oh, my goodness gracious, little boy. Isn't that beautiful? Listeners can't see the picture, but it's a gorgeous little baby. <laughs> What's his name? His name is Chaim Shmuel. Maybe that's Rabbi Kreisworth? Chaim is from Chaim Kreisworth, and Shmuel is from my father. Oh, isn't that beautiful? Well, God willing, you'll, uh, you'll have the great honor of bringing him up as a real bench that's uh, a shame. over well, many years. I found out already that um, I'm in the process of making a zvul in the soccer for him because it turned out that I couldn't do it with my money because then it's not his money and right. he has to make this one the soccer. Well, it turns out from Rabbi Daitel, do you know Rabbi Daitel? No. He's one of the rabbis in Machon Shlomo, also a good friend of mine. And he told me, and my cousin confirmed it, my cousin's a lawyer in New Jersey, because it happened for him that if, you're on, if I'm on Social Security, my son is eligible for Social Security. Wow. So most people never happen because you, most people have their kids in the 20s and 30s. By the time they're eligible for Social Security, the kid's too old because it's only until he's 18. So I'm having my first kid. I'm already on Social Security. And so my son is eligible for Social Security now. So he's eligible to go to Social Security now from the time now until he's, until he's 18 years old. So I'm, I've already, through a friend of mine uh, who runs, the, I, I dub Nates, and if I, if I runs the dub Nates minion is Ari Wasserman, another guy worth interviewing. Uh, a guy who grew up in Los Angeles, went to Penn, Wharton, went, oh, to, Wasserman. Yeah, yeah, sure. went to Harvard Law School. Wrote all the books, right, yeah. And his brother farm. Noam is the... Uh, yeah, Wright's Farm, Halakha yeah. in, the, in the workplace. Yep. Uh, anyhow, so he runs our Nate's Minion. Where is that? In, uh, in Ramban, in Natesach. Okay, but you come from Arnof to the... No, 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 I don't live in Arnof anymore. Oh, you I live Now I live down the street. That's why I could come uh, here and meet you here. Okay. So uh, my wife didn't want to live in Harnoff. She has relatives in Harnoff, but she didn't want to live there anymore. So we're living here. So he, through his, re so his Rav in B'nai Brak, brought me somebody who's a huge Shalman Tachem, who's a favorite son of Roshalom Zalman Arbach, and used to be Rosh Kolel. Anyhow, so uh, as soon as I get my money, he's going to be, I was doing the soccer with him. Yeah. And uh, he's a constant source of 
Machas for me so far, Bliyai and Hora. But I'm, my nights don't always get, well, we just finally got up to the point where he's sleeping about five, six hours a night. Wow. And um, anyhow, so I, w- I used to be in Kolel in the morning and work on this in the afternoon. But now I have to, my wife is, also has the fibromyalgia, so I have to help out my wife a lot. And uh, yeah. so my, I had, I had to stop Kolo for a while. I mean, I, st- I learned Dafyomi, but I still continue that. But I, uh, I had stopped some of the other learning I do other than in the house. Anyhow, so I'm trying to learn as much as I can on my own. And I do the project, and that's what I do. And Beautiful. try and run my financial affairs at the same time. Right. Beautiful. Well, it sounds like you have a lot going on, a lot to be excited about, and in particular, this, this beautiful child and uh, a family that you've waited so long to, to have. And uh, again, God willing, he'll grow to be a source of great pride for you and, and again, to be a, a real mensch, in, like the book says. <laughs> that that was ama- well, amazing because my mother's site was uh, a Tuesday. Uh, it was right after Shavuos. My brother's was Wednesday, and the baby was born on Thursday. Oh, isn't that special? So beautiful. Well, he should, he should be a, uh, a merit to all of their memories and uh, through his, his beautiful actions and deeds. Merit to him. Patterned after his father and, uh, <laughs> and, and, all, his father. and all, all the wonderful role models in his life. Moshe Kaplan, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for the opportunity. This has been Ari Koretsky on Jews You Should Know. Please visit us at JewsYouShouldKnow.com and subscribe at iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you consume podcasts. Find us on social media at JewsYouShouldKnow. If you'd like to become a supporter of this podcast, we would greatly appreciate that. And you can do so by visiting Patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash JewsYouShouldKnow. Finally, If you have enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review so that we can continue to grow and introduce many more people to Jews you should know.